0: Welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Ian Shin. Today on our podcast, we have Lon Kurashige speaking about his book, Two Faces of Exclusion, The Untold Story of Anti-Asian Racism in the United States, published in 2016 by the University of North Carolina Press. Lon Kurashige is Professor of History and Spatial Sciences at the University of Southern California, where his research focuses on Asian American history. The Japanese-American Experience, Ethnic Identity Politics, Internment Studies, and Comparative Ethnicity. He is the author and editor of four other books in addition to Two Faces. In our conversation, Lon takes us through the twists and turns of the historical debates over the exclusion and restriction of Asian immigration to the United States. I also enjoyed speaking with Lon about some of the methodological changes in the field of Asian American history, especially the possibilities of quantitative and digital history. I hope you enjoy this interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ian Shin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Lon Kurishige about his book, Two Faces of Exclusion, The Untold History of Anti-Asian Racism in the United States, published in 2016 by the University of North Carolina Press. Lon is Professor of History and Spatial Sciences at the University of Southern California. Lon, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me, Ian. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself, Lon.
1: Well, as you mentioned, I'm a historian uh, at USC in LA, and I grew up in LA, and um, went to undergrad Santa Barbara, and I discovered that I I loved history and I especially love my own personal history. Or I love learning about, especially Japanese American, uh, history and the internment camps. This is a history that was denied to me or I didn't know anything about. And so I was quite angry and, and bitter when I learned about the internment. Uh, so that propelled me on the graduate school in Wisconsin. Um, and. Wisconsin was really, you know, it was the first time I was away from the West Coast. And so that was really eye-opening to me. And it kind of perpetuated this anger I had about minority issues and feeling marginalized and neglected and and the racism you experience. So that, I think, explains a lot of my motivation for uh, my first book, uh, which was on Japanese American, uh, the construction of Japanese American ethnicity.
0: And so, have you found your, your work uh, sort of focused on the West Coast mainly, the Midwest, or how do you think about sort of uh, given that you li- you grew up, you said in LA, and also in in uh, did your uh, graduate work in Wisconsin? How do you think about the sort of geographic uh, focus that you take in your work? Well, I think it's 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 evolved and changed, and certainly it's all about, it's been about
1: you know learning about new places. I mean, growing up, even though LA is a very big city. You know, it's still, I think, like any place, it's still very regional in focus. At least that's how I grew up. I knew a lot about LA, but didn't know much about other parts of California or the country. And so my whole experience has been one of sort of broadening my circle of familiarity. And so the Midwest was really useful for that. Before that, I was in DC working on Capitol Hill. And then I think since uh, grad school, it's been about internationalizing. And so it's been the sort of evolution of
0: a kind of regional to a global mentality. It's interesting you say that because I think in some ways it tracks with some of the trends and changes we see in the field of Asian American history, especially the internationalizing um, and the transnationalizing of that field. I'm curious too about the the fact that you worked in Washington, D.C., uh, which as our listeners will get a sense of when we start to talk about the book, uh, when it comes to uh, roll call votes and, uh, counting votes and whatnot. Um, you know, perhaps there's a connection there that I didn't realize. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you did in Washington and, and perhaps how that might've influenced the way that you think about the way that you do history now? Well, I think uh, work is probably uh, not the right
1: term. I was interning. So this was, uh, after I graduated, but it was still part of a kind of college internship program in DC. Um, Uh, but, but it did in terms of getting me out of California, it really exposed me to a, you know, not just the the DC or East coast area, but a kind of national focus and exposed me to politics on the Hill. And so I was privy to, this is before internment, uh, the, the redress uh, legislation passed in 1988. Um, and so I was privy to, uh, some meetings with Bob Matsui and I worked for Norm Mineta, um, or intern for Normanetta's office. And so you know, I could really get a sense of how policy was being made
0: and really, you know, interesting policy to me in terms of, of redress. Right, and and uh, listeners will will find it interesting later on that uh, Congressman Mineta, who later on is Secretary of Transportation under President George W. Bush, um, you know, does show up in in Chapter Eight, and you do talk about that that history of of the redress movement, uh, which we'll get to later. Um, but for now, I wonder if you can maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to write two faces of exclusion, um, which is uh, I believe your your second monograph, although you've written or edited five books total as of today, as of twenty eighteen, right? Uh yeah, that I guess
1: that's right. I'm not really counting. But um in terms of the, the books, the single author books that I've written, there certainly there there are two. Um and I think to understand the origins of Two Faces, you know, I need to start briefly with the that first book, which was my dissertation which is called Japanese-American Celebration and Conflict. And that's a study of, like I said, ethnic identity construction, but it's through a festival in Los Angeles called Nisei Week Festival, uh, focusing on Little Tokyo and Japanese-Americans. And that that was my dissertation, my first book, as I said. And that was all about an internal history of the Japanese-American community in Los Angeles. Um, and... I was interested in the diversity of voices and perspectives and how the construction of that identity um, was about silencing many of these alternative voices oftentimes coming from communists or outsiders other types of outsiders younger generations um and then during the war nationalists for japan etc so there's incredible diversity which i knew growing up in los angeles but didn't see it represented in the literature so much. I saw it all flattened as, here's the Japanese American perspectives, or Here are the different generational changes. But I didn't see all of the diversity that I saw growing up. Um, and so that led to that book. And, but that book just focused on one group, on Japanese Americans. And it really uh, assumed that all whites were hostile, racist or indifferent, not, not seeking to you know, be non-racist or, or, or beneficial to the Japanese Americans. And in the second book, um, I learned that, that whites were not all racist. And so that was kind of the, the initial motivation to this. I was studying this guy, Chester Rowell, who becomes, if you read the book, he becomes a kind of central figure to the book, although there are many characters in the book. Um, and he's a guy who was incredibly racist toward the Japanese in the early 20th century and then changes. He morphs in the 20s to becoming an incredible advocate for the Japanese and for other civil rights issues of the day. And so that really intrigued me. And that was the beginning of the Two Faces book. It's like, who else? Who among these other whites who were assumed to be only racist uh, switched or were more complicated in terms of their views of Asians, not just Japanese, but but other Asians? And so I started with Rao and I just started looking to see going back in time to the 1850s and ahead in time to the 1950s you know, who else was like that? And I discovered a lot of people or a lot more than I had assumed that there were. And and they weren't just anybody. They weren't just sort of somebody on the street, but these were presidents. They were, you know, leaders of business. They were people like Chester Rowell, who were progressive leaders in California and the editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. And so I thought, wow, there's a real story here um, of these sort of more egalitarian whites, or at least more sympathetic or less discriminatory whites when it came to Asian American political issues. Um, Then I faced uh, a kind of, you know, a a, a situation where I had to think about, okay, do I write a book just on them? And that's where my initial inclination was. Uh, But then when I started putting together their, their story, I realized, well, I can't really explain their story without connecting it with all of the whites who were racist. And there was a lot of those too. And so, but that's what the literature focuses on as you know. And so I thought, well, there's a, I have to look at both sides and thus the two faces or the debate over exclusion or internment or whatever the anti-Asian issue was. Um, and so that's the origin of the book about two faces of exclusion
0: yeah, and I think one of the sort of key central features of the book, which hopefully will intrigue and 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 entice our um, our listeners, is that we have uh, sort of in some sense, lost the kind of nuance, right uh, of of the exclusion debate um, and and the anti-asian racism in the United States. Uh, and uh, your book does a wonderful job of restoring that nuance to uh, this history. Um, and that can be, sometimes challenging to, to uh, navigate especially as we get into we'll talk about in the um, in, in the eighth chapter um, you know where we, we want to sort of recognize both the historical, very clearly sort of racist origins of the history, uh, but also um, sort of give credit to and recognize the egalitarianism um, that uh, also fueled the anti-racist um, activism and policies uh, that we do see from the mid 19th century uh, to today. Um, but I don't want to jump ahead too far ahead because um, I do actually have some other <laughs> questions about the overall um, uh, sort of structure of the book, and even before we, we sort of get to that, one of the things that, you know, as I started reading the book, I think, uh, and anyone else who does will be very struck by is um, the the sort of uh, jacket illustration you've chosen uh, for two faces, which um, I, I did a little reading about um and it's a print by roger shimamura um uh, and the title of the print is shimamura crossing the delaware it's it's a very uh sort of thought-provoking um illustration Um, i wondered if you could tell us a little bit about um the image and 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 why you chose it to to be the cover of two faces yeah uh, i i have been struck as you were by roger's
1: art um and I was surprised to learn from my aunt that that she had known him because they both they all grew up in Seattle together and attended the University of Washington, and so she knew him there. And I think my uncle knew him even better because there was some personal connection to his one of his relatives. Um, so I I, I like that, but that's not why I chose the 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 print. Or it's it's it just struck me. If you if you know Roger's art, he puts his face in a lot of it, and. He does it in an with an Asian American consciousness. He puts his face where a iconic white face will be. In this case, George Washington crossing the Delaware, and it really challenges the viewer to to think about wow, why you know it looks strange, it looks funny, you know either funny ha ha or funny just odd ah, ah, and strange. But then it, it challenges the reader to think about why you know, why is it that, you know, what are our racial assumptions about whiteness or about Asian-ness, you know, that, that make that unusual and peculiar? And I thought that, you know, that would be perfect. And since, you know, this is a historical uh, depiction, I thought it would be really uh, great for, for this book. And he generously, uh, you know, allowed me to use it.
0: Yeah, it's it's a really fantastic sort of image to represent the, the story of the book. And, and, uh, listeners who who find a chance to 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 look up this print will see that um, you know in fact the uh, Roger's face um, the artist's face is is uh, takes the place of George Washington but all the men that he rose across the Delaware with have been replaced uh, or substituted with Japanese samurai um, right. and right. Uh, and the Delaware is is uh, I'm I read uh, in the National Portrait Gallery that the um, the Delaware has been supplanted with uh, the San Francisco uh, uh, Bay, um, and that you can, in fact, see Angel Island in, uh, in the distance. Uh, so it's a, it's just a really great uh, um, image to kick off um, the story. Um, and in fact, the, the kind of nautical theme um, ties in really nicely with um, uh, one of the major kind of motifs um, that you bring to this history, uh, which is this idea of a perfect storm narrative. Um, and you also organize the book chronologically, but with this uh, uh, storm motif. And we'll talk about some of the chapter titles, which are so wonderful. Um, but I want to start with this idea of a perfect storm narrative, which you talk about in the history of anti-Asian racism in the United States. What do you mean by a perfect storm narrative?
1: Yeah, that that um, that was important to me, and it, and it was just a kind of accident that the, the artwork you know picked up on that. Um, I think my main point, or that what what drew me to that idea, and apply to apply that idea to um, this narrative is that i think so often the assumption is that anti-asian racism was inevitable you know there's no history i mean there's a history to you know how it was expressed and who got hurt and how bad it was kind of it was sort of bad there then got really bad you know but i think the perfect storm sort of metaphor to me allowed me to show the historicity of anti-asian racism and that you know, it's not just a question of always bad and then worse, but um, it's a question of contingency, that things came together at certain moments of time, in, in my story in the late 19th century, and that there's a lot of unrelated sort of historical phenomenon that just converged to create this, these conditions in which exclusion was possible. And so that implies that exclusion wasn't possible from the 1850s till the 18 you know late early 1880s till 1882 with chinese exclusion or chinese restriction um and, and and indeed it wasn't in terms of a national policy of exclusion and i think a lot of the scholarship implies or, or outright states that that whole period from the 1850s to the 80s was sort of racism and it was inevitable that it was going to happen at some point
0: and i I think one of the things that one of the questions that you sort of cite as uh, a prompt is, is uh, you know, I think Gordon Chang, who wrote uh, or posed the question, you know, why did exclusion take so long? Right. Um, and, and, and that's one of the ways in which we might think about how there are um, uh, different, as you write, vulnerabilities um, that need to sort of come together uh, in order to uh uh enable um exclusion exclusionists uh to to win the the victories that they seek um over 140 year period, and then eventually lose out to two egalitarians, uh, but that it's constantly uh, flowing back and forth between the two of them. So let's, let's dive into the um, the book. Um, and again, I, I'm just going to um, tell listeners, you know, that the chapters uh, titles, because they, they are, they tie in so beautifully to to this perfect storm narrative. So let's start with chapter one, which is entitled before the storm race for commercial empire, 1846 to 1876. I sometimes wondered if reading that title race, you meant uh, both in the sense of competition, but also in the sense that we often understand it today as a marker of social difference. Um, In this chapter, in the first chapter, you introduce us to the two basic camps that are going to take sides on the question of Asian migration and settlement in the United States throughout the rest of the book, and those are the exclusionists and the egalitarians um, and so here we meet people like William Speer, Charles Sumner, John Connis. Some of these names, for example, Sumner will be more familiar to listeners than others, perhaps like William Speer and John Connis. So perhaps you can start us by telling uh, start off by telling us a little bit about um, in the context of the mid nineteenth century. What do the exclusionist and egalitarian camps look like? How are they broken down?
1: Uh, Okay, Uh, but I think uh, before I get into chapter one, one um, part of the book that I think a lot of your listeners and and historians in general uh, are curious about is the term you've been using without sort of commenting on it, and that is egalitarian maybe it struck you as odd, it strikes a, strikes a lot of people as odd. And I have to say, I thought really deeply and long about whether to use that term egalitarian, because these days, it means somebody who, who's, you know, just perfect in a way, right, who's beyond any kind of racial prejudice or any sort of bias at all, and is has a sort of you know, wonderful understanding of equality across everybody, you know, not just race, but class, gender, sexual, whatever. To be egalitarian is sort of like to be incredibly the the most noble person. You know, maybe the Dalai Lama is egalitarian today or something. It's kind of an ideal form where very few people reach. And the people I'm talking about, like the the ones you mentioned, whether it's Spear or Connist or who I'd want to focus on in chapter one is William Seward. Um, cause he's really the main character in that chapter or Anson Burlingame. Um, they were hardly perfect people, you know, when it came to race or class or sexuality or gender, any of those things. And so a lot of my critics will say, well, why even use the word egalitarian? You know, um, they were, they were all still had racial biases. They were men, white men in the nine, you know, 19th century, right? Um. And so I totally concede that, I and mean, that's, that's absolutely true. But I think I want to, by egalitarian, I, first of all, I want to use a historically specific term of what does egalitarians mean in the 19th century versus the early 20th century and how that idea changes with the changes in this whole exclusion debate that I talk about. But also part of it was I wanted to shed light on what do we mean by exclusionists? Because that's the other side. That's the two faces, right? That's the other face. Um, And I think so often we accept an assumption that exclusionist just means they're racist, right? And in many ways, to a certain extent, everyone, all whites in America were exclusionists or were biased in some way. And I want to show how that term is inadequate as well. I mean, there's no perfect term here, but I think exclusionist is not historically specific. It has a sort of essentialist understandings or assumptions about, in this case, whites, you know, they're all this way, et cetera. And I think a lot of literature picks up on those types of essentialist assumptions. And so I thought, well, why not use egalitarian as an imperfect term? Because exclusionist is just as imperfect, but to make sure as best I can in the introduction and throughout to, to show that what I mean by exclusionist and what I mean by egalitarian. That's why in the introduction, there is a, a lot of sort of ink spilled about what I mean by egalitarian. And I don't, know if people are gonna agree with me in terms of how I'm using it, but um, you know, at least I do try to explain that term with nuance. Okay, and so now um on chapter one. And so the, I really think that as I said, William Seward is is the main character here. We I starts with him, you know, in terms of a kind of anecdote about him and and how uh, you mentioned Gordon Chang. Both Gordon and I talk about people like Seward and others who had this incredible, you know, global vision or Pacific vision um, in the 1840s. And and even earlier, even Jefferson and so forth saw saw Asia, China in particular, as a means for developing the U.S. economically um, to surpass Britain, which was, you know, at the time in the late 17th century, early 18th century, was by far the superior power economically, militarily, everything to the US, right? And so the whole goal was to catch up. And US was very much a third world or third rate power at the time. And so they saw China as their way to catch up economically. And so they had this vision of a commercial empire, not a military empire, but a commercial empire. And so the question really was, how how do we manifest that? How do we create these types of trade routes to china and to, to bring all of those riches from china to uh you know products and so forth to uh the us and you know at first it was the 13 states or colonies that became states right first you had to get to the pacific coast right and so this chapter is all about how does the us get to the pacific coast and how does that whole dream of asia you know step by step. Come to be more of a reality and so it starts with Seward's sort of grandiose visions of at one point you know in the 1840s when he's a senator u.s senator from s or from new york uh you know his visions uh, his dreams really about this this uh trans-pacific sort of connection and key to those dreams he was very aware was immigration because there were no people in the west you know uh in terms of large numbers of workers who can really develop, who can build the bridges and the harbors and man the factories, et cetera, um, that, that you needed, that you would see on the, on the East Coast with the Irish and the Germans and all of the, the immigrants flooding into the country in the 1840s and 50s. Uh, so he had these, you know, these dreams, but he had these, the, a key part of it was Chinese immigration. And he and he would had no problems with millions of Chinese coming in because he put development and commercial empire and surpassing Britain or at least competing with Britain uh, ahead of any notion of racial difference. In fact, he he thought you know the Chinese were just as capable. They were just you know developmentally behind because of the you know particularities of Asian history. But he didn't think racially they were inferior at all. So it starts with that vision, and then the chapter ends with Seward going on a trip after Seward uh, becomes uh, Lincoln's uh, secretary of state, you know, during the civil war, Lincoln Lincoln administration. Um, and his whole, you know, he's there at the, at the time when the Republicans, create the transcontinental railroad that the Congress passes legislation to pay for the transcontinental railroad. That's in some ways, you know, he claims that that's all part of this sort of filling out the vision of this commercial empire of the Pacific. You know, he's mostly known, you know, by people today for, you know, buying Alaska, Seward's Folly, right? There's Seward, Alaska. Uh, But that's, again, you know, whether it's Folly or not, that was all part of the vision of getting to the West Coast. And creating these, you know, the 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 fur trade or the the fur trade, but also whaling was really big, and so Alaska was a very commercially important place uh, for Pacific um, economic, you know, commercial empire. So Seward is a key person. And at the end of the chapter, after he retires uh, from Secretary of State and from politics towards the end of his life, he goes on a tour, and he goes to Asia. And he takes the Transcontinental Railroad across, you know, to San Francisco, stays in San Francisco and takes the Pacific Steamship, the company line that, well, you know, he was Secretary of State when he was in Congress, the the U.S. uh, Well, when he was Secretary of State, the U.S. uh, Congress creates a contract with the Pacific Mail Steamship Company in San Francisco, a semi-private company. And then they are the key American commercial uh, shipping link to China. And so, and, and Japan. And so he just travels on that ship and he sees all of the merchandise going from America to China. Um, he sees Chinese immigrants going home. He sees missionaries going abroad to Asia, military Asiatic squadron, the U.S. Navy, you know, to Asia. And this is all, to some extent, he had a hand in all of this coming to be by the 18, early 1870s. But it was just the pipe dream in the 1840s. So that's what this chapter is really about. And at the core of this is, as I said, was this notion of immigration, right? And that Chinese immigration was completely not just okay, it was welcomed. You know, it was welcomed by the U.S. So there's a very important uh, treaty between the U.S. and China called the Burlingame Treaty, um, 1868. And Seward is Secretary of State at the time, and he's very close with Anson Burlingame, who an American, who, who is representing China, though. He used to be a, a House of Representatives uh, from Massachusetts, he used to be a, a congressman from Massachusetts, who's a radical Republican, sympathetic. Uh, you know, same with Seward. And so he had that same vision of commercial empire. And so in that treaty, what's really key about the Burlingame Treaty was it allows chinese immigration to the us on the same terms as any immigrants coming to the us In words, it's a very liberal treaty when it comes to us chinese relations especially when it comes to chinese immigration um, so that's that's all that's the constant theme about the exclusion debate this larger context of commercial empire but how chinese immigration was open and
0: welcome that brings us beautifully to actually the second chapter then, which, um, we begin to see, uh, as the title suggests the first downpour, uh, about Chinese immigrants and gilded age politics from 1876 to 1882, uh, folks who are familiar with us history will obviously pick up on the connections to the end of reconstruction, uh, and, uh, the enactment of the Chinese exclusion act. Um, this chapter for me was was really exciting because uh, it proposed a new approach of looking at debates over Chinese exclusion in the 1870s and 1880s, in particular, by taking stock of what you call the totality the totality of roll call voting in Congress. Um, and we've already alluded earlier to the the sort of um, revision that you're trying to make in terms of understanding all the different priorities that are um, um, uh, being uh, sort of um, played up and, and debated uh, around the nation during this period, um, what does this vote counting, especially when we break it down by region, as you do in chapter two, what does that vote counting tell us uh, that's new about uh, why Chinese exclusion happens in the 1870s and 1880s?
1: Yeah, I you know, I, there's a lot of work written over the years on Chinese exclusion on the 1882 Act, and we can debate to whether to call it exclusion or restriction. It's really restriction. It's not total ban. Um, but um, none of them really relied upon roll call votes, you know, as as a crucial source. Some might mention a roll call vote here or there. And and just for your listeners, I wasn't always familiar with this. A roll call vote is a vote taken in Congress about a particular you know, measure. It could be as simple as, do we, should we adjourn right now or later on, or should we vote before we adjourn, et cetera, or it could be a major legislation. Usually, all, all that's required is that somebody raises their hand and says, I'd like a roll call vote taken on this measure. And, and most of them, I would say about, it depends on, on, the, on the Congress, but Maybe about half of them get roll call votes, maybe less than half of them. Um, And so roll call votes are not every, every vote does not get a roll call vote. And all the roll call vote is just, it just tells you who voted for what, you know, there were, I don't know, 10 votes for no, and, you know, 150 votes for yes, and how each individual member voted. So. There were some analysts who would look at some of these roll call votes on Chinese exclusion or issues related to it and then talk about, oh, this person voted or this state voted this way or this region voted this way. But nobody really incorporated that into a systematic analysis. And there were many roll call votes involving Chinese issues or issues of Chinese exclusion. Like I said, it could be as simple as to adjourn and so forth. Um, So. I, you know, I discovered that there there's a database available of roll call votes. Uh, and in fact, I, I knew about this for other factors. And this wasn't so much from working for Norm um, uh, on the Hill, but this was in graduate school of Wisconsin, where one of my mentors was Alan Bogue, who was a well-known Western historian, but he was also well-known as a political historian uh, of the U.S., who was involved in cleometrics, involved in quantitative history. And he was a founder of ICPSR, which is this big clearinghouse of quantitative data in the social sciences at the University of Michigan, which is still going very strong, but started in the 60s. And one of the first things they did was they digitized, or they digitized, they they compiled all these quantitative votes from the congressional record, um, and they put them into database forms where you can use them through statistical packages. Uh, So I learned about that in in graduate school. I didn't really think about it in terms of Asian American issues. I just kind of filed it away. But then, you know, in coming in and doing this project, it just came back and I thought, oh, I should look at that database. (laughs) And sure enough, I found a lot of votes on the Chinese. Uh, So that's the kind of uh, a key part of the data source for this chapter is thinking about Chinese exclusion through these roll call votes. But then Starting there, but then, you know, from, from there, really thinking about the context in which these votes were taking. And so first I had to connect it to the first chapter, which I just talked about. So I had to continue those themes. And in fact, the roll call votes go back to that first chapter as well, because I looked at roll call votes about creating, you know, transportation networks to the West, funding the Pacific Mail ste- Steamship uh, Company, you know, which, which failed until the Republicans got control of the government during the Civil War. When the South left and all the Democrats, you know, were at a disadvantage. Um, And so there really is a kind of thread of looking at the roll call votes to see what I can say about this larger context of Pacific commercial empire, because that's how I see Chinese immigration issues. It's all tied to the vision of Pacific commercial empire.
0: You also do some really interesting counts of um, terms and keywords that appear in select newspapers, uh, using the San Francisco Chronicle and uh, what you what you categorize as egalitarian newspapers, including the New York Times, the New York Tribune, the Hartford Current. Um, you know and and you sort of uh, uh, compare the appearance of uh, different words like "coolie," labor union importation and monopoly in the San Francisco Chronicle versus rights trade goods Republican and treaty in egalitarian newspapers I think you know folks who will read this book will sort of again see the the uh, quantitative history um, and and the methodology that's I think distinctive compared to it seems to me the uh, trend to focus more on cultural studies or, or cultural dimensions of uh, Asian American history recently. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit about how you see the broader methodological shifts and or uh, trends within our field um, and and what you hope to see in terms of engagement with things like these kinds of databases when it comes to um Political, uh, the political history of exclusion. I think one of the things that we might even touch on, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, is again your work on um, Chapter 5, when you look at the vote breakdowns uh, in. uh, for Proposition 1, which is, uh, we'll talk about a l- little bit, um, uh, an expansion of an alien land uh, law in California, um, and, and the ways in which you are able to use uh, geographic distribution, and perhaps you can, this is where we might talk about your, um, your role as uh, a professor of spatial sciences as well. Uh, to incorporate some of that data uh, into the way that we do Asian American history. So, taking all of that in view, a uh, very long-winded question. Um, how do you how do you think about um, the methodological changes in Asian American history overall?
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that question. I I really like to talk about methodology, and even in my first book, I've always had quantitative data in in my my study. That that first book, as I said, was about the construction of Japanese American identity, but it was focused on a cultural, on a festival. So there was a kind of overlay of anthropology and cultural studies in terms of how do you analyze a festival, right? Or meanings of race and ethnicity, identity within the festival. Um, but, but there was always the social history spine of the census of data of, you know, counting. You know, who's in in trying to connect sociologically, who's most likely to have this discourse on identity as opposed to this discourse on identity. Those are all sort of in some ways I'm really as a social historian, I'm really sort of interested in these type of sociological questions. Uh, So I continue that in this book. Um, I'm very when it comes to methodology, I'm very inclusionist. Uh, I don't like to throw anything out. So. You know, part of me was drawn, trained in social history. Um, you know, I took the cultural turn. I was in grad school at the time when, you know, Foucault and Derrida and all the cultural studies movement happened. And I took courses, and I took courses in cultural studies and anthropology. I loved it. You know, I loved all that stuff. And so I very much, and Michael Omi and Howard Winant's book on racial formation, so taking the cultural turns of race theory and racial, you know, studies, uh, that's a huge part of that first book but at the same time i'm just uh, i don't want to throw anything out i think the temptation is that okay now we do discourse and that means all the quantitative stuff is no longer i just like to keep it all in and just mash it all together because i just think any source that you can find especially you know in the field like asian american history where there's not a lot of sources all the time you know why throw anything out i like to sort of incorporate all of it you know in a way that's thoughtful to think about okay well you have to handle this source a little bit differently than this kind of source. And, and, but then, you know, once you have those precautions, how do you merge them together in a narrative? What can they tell you? What piece of the story can they provide? Uh, so I continue that, as you mentioned in in this book, uh, with the looking at, and, and these days with the, you know, the digitization of everything like newspapers, right? It's so easy to get the New York times or the tribune or the chronicle, you know, all our universities subscribe to them but i feel like they're more useful than just reading them right and so why not do something like that will connect discourse what's the discourse what are the key terms used by these different regions where the chronicle represented the west coast and the three other papers represent the east coast um what discourse do they use what key terms do they use so rather than just reading that you can also quantifiably count them right so easily just put in search terms so I thought this is a way of taking advantage of a technology that we use you know, every day, but we don't always apply it to our analysis in this way. And what it, what it showed was, when you mentioned those terms, was it confirmed, it added more evidence to the argument I was making that there were East and West Coast differences in how they viewed Chinese exclusion. And it depended on their political economy. You know, that in the East Coast, it was a center of the nation's business. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Um, The the whole nation, uh, the whole sort of finance and capital and maritime, you know, shipping and all that stuff was all in the Northeast. Um, And so they saw the uh, exclusion as an issue of treaty rights, as an issue of keeping the Burlingame Treaty, or at least if modifying it, modifying it gently, you know, not getting rid of it. Uh, of keeping good ties with China, so consistent with the Seward vision, with the burning game constituency, I call it. Whereas in the West Coast, it was very different, right? It was all about labor rights. It was about you know equality for white working class people, as opposed to the rich robber barons. Um, and Chinese exclusion was seen as a wedge, right, against um, you know between them, their opportunity, a wedge between them and the, and the white the white elite. And so they wanted to get rid of that wedge and create more equality. Um, so, yeah, so I'm glad you asked about methodology.
0: Well, I think uh, this brings us uh, then after um, considering some of the debates over chinese restriction uh, or exclusion then to to chapters uh, 3 and 4 um, uh, 3 4 and 5 really work to work well i think as as uh, thinking about uh, the shifting of the debate from uh, chinese issues to issues that touch on other asian populations uh, japanese being uh, probably the biggest one but also filipinos um as well. Uh, and chapter three really thinks about the way in which you uh, are able to identify two key forces in the 1880s and 1890s that impact Asian restriction or Asian exclusion. First is the opposition to broader waves of immigration beyond those that are from Asia to include people from Eastern and Southern Europe. Um, um, the second is the uh, what you call the dawn of America's imperial age, um, which most people think about uh, with the 1890s, with the annexation of Hawaii, and uh, with uh, the, the uh, colonization of the Philippines. I wanted to focus in particular on that second part um, uh, on, on America's imperialism because we've seen in other accounts the links between U.S. imperialism or U.S. foreign relations and immigration. I'm thinking in particular of Don Agbaci's work and others. But you know, perhaps, again, drawing back to the central argument of your book, what does U.S. imperialism do in terms of the cause of egalitarianism, as you've defined
1: it? Yeah, that... Um that's kind of surprises people it surprised me perhaps in my research because we usually just see the annexation of the Philippines as just another expression of anti-asian racism right it's just consistent with all the exclusionism that's going on in the U.S. you know at the same time um, whether it's against the Chinese or the Japanese and then later on certainly against the Filipinos um And that's true. I mean, there's no denying that there's an incredible, I mean, Paul Kramer's book on the Philippines, you know, shows clearly about all how all of the sort of the ideas of benevolent assimilation or of uplift had a racial dimension, right? There was this idea that we can uplift them, but it's going to take a long time. We don't know how long because they're so backward and they're so racially other, right? Um, yet at the same time and I, I, I completely am convinced with all of that, but at the same time when I bring it back to the study of two faces of exclusion of two sides, the exclusion debate in the US, the colonists uh, that, like McKinley or TR or Taft who's the first you know uh, US official governing the Philippines and then becomes president, um, it's completely, you know, this benevolent assimilation, completely paternalistic and with racial tinges, of course, but they're on the side of non-discrimination. You know, they're on the egalitarian side of the exclusion debate, because how can you, on the one hand, promote Filipino uplift and... Um, encourage and allow create a program in which elite Filipino students are coming to the U.S. to study at colleges to show what a noble mission the U.S. has uh, has been under, you know, is, is, is operating in the Philippines uh, to uplift these these savage quote unquote people, um, and at the same time say, oh, we do we do we want to exclude them because they're inferior, <laughs> right? And so it was it, there was a dissonance there, and so. The colonialists tended to be almost always on the side of non-discrimination, on the egalitarian side. Um, and so I see this uh, dimension of imperialism as adding new players to this exclusion debate, supporting really the egalitarian side. And on the other side, people like Samuel Gompers, who's the head of AFL, major labor union, is against um, imperialism. You know, doesn't support in many ways. He concedes in some ways, but in general, he's against, his stance is against imperialism. He's anti-imperialist. And one of the main factors is because by engaging in imperialism, um, the U.S. is required to allow these new subjects, like Filipinos, to enter the country. Um, And so, so, you know, that, that, that supports the, the, but the same players who were on the exclusionist side, you know, use imperialist or anti-imperialist arguments to buffer or, or support their their, their cause. Um, did you uh, hold on, Ian, I, this, you can edit this out, but I, my computer just it shut down because I wasn't you know it, it did a sleep mode. Are you okay? Yep, I can still hear you. So there was no funny pause or anything?
0: No, no, not at all. Good.
1: Okay. Um, Give me another prompt. How can I continue with these three chapters?
0: Well, so I I think the other um, issue that um, Gompers and and his followers bring up is is another concept that might be surprising to um, our listeners, which again, you know, you, you, you do such a wonderful job of reframing some of these familiar concepts and notions that we have about Asian exclusion um, to to help us rethink this history. And I'm, I'm really referring um, to one of the central ideas in Chapter 4, the title of which is Rising Tide of Fear, White and Yellow Perils, 1904 to 1919 folks may be very familiar with the idea of a yellow peril who who are familiar with Asian American history, the idea of yellow hordes coming from Asia to take over the United States and contaminate its political, economic, and social life. But I think the idea of a white peril might be something that people are surprised to hear about. And this is a phrase that you borrow from Sidney Gulick, um, uh, again, someone on the egalitarian side of the debate. So how does white peril Surface uh, or fears of white peril surface in at the turn of the 20th century, and what do they have to do with the debate over uh, uh, racism and exclusion?
1: Yeah, that's that's a important point, and I think this has to do with expanding the scope. If you look beyond the U.S. for this narrative, if you look at sort of U.S.'s global reach, or maybe even the West, the Europe's global reach, you know, to Asia, then you're drawn to people like Sidney right? Who's an American, but who's a missionary in Japan. And he becomes fluent in Japanese. He's there for many years. He really loves Japan. Uh, in many ways, his, his mission, as maybe many of your listeners know, you know, doesn't quite, it kind of fails, right? The U S does not, I mean, Japan does not become a major Christian country, like say, korea does Uh, so but but still a lot of these missionaries really come to respect japanese people and japanese culture and so they're the leaders or they're a very important input into uh, or influence in in on the egalitarian side when japan becomes the major subject of exclusion in the early 20th century uh, all the way up through the war right world war ii um And so when you expand the narrative to include, you know, all of Asia, then you get these perspectives and you get these concerns about, hey, wait a minute, exclusion is so humiliating to whether it's China or in this case, Japan, um, that we need to not, you know, we need to not discriminate because it's screwing up, not just our missionary, you know, our mission in, in East Asia. But it's screwing up our good political relations between the U.S. and Japan, right? The Japanese government is really humiliated and and upset at any sort of mention of a kind of exclusion like that, which happened with the Chinese. Because Japan at the time is an imperial power. It defeats China in the 1890s and then defeats Russia in 1904, right? And its military, its navy in particular, is top-notch. Japan is developing in so many other ways, economically, culturally, you know, its cities, et cetera, uh, is borrowing from the West, is in conversation What the West, sees itself very much as a world power. And Theodore Roosevelt, when he becomes president, very much acknowledges this, you know, very supportive of Japan and very impressed with its civilization and fearful, in many ways, of a potential war. Um, and so these are new actors, you know, uh, these international players like Gulick. And then even Gulick is in touch with the Japanese foreign ministry as well. And they're plotting, well, plotting is not the right word, but they're cooperating to oppose Japanese exclusion. And so that's the white peril, right, applied to the exclusion debate, um, is that uh, actions, sort of arrogant, racist actions by white powers like the U.S. in Asia uh, are a peril to some kind of Pacific cooperation, some kind of, a, you know, mutual um, development uh, and, and anti-war, right? Some kind of perpetuation of peace. Um, and so the whites need to be very careful about being overtly racist. They can't do that because Japan is now a world power. They can't do that
0: anymore and get away with it. Right. And and we, in fact, as you recount for us in the book, uh, see some testimonies later on that the sort of formalization of Japanese restriction in 1924, uh, you know, people testify that there is an impact in terms of the the uh, fallout, the political fallout in Japan, and the sort of decline of liberalism and the rise of a military uh, uh, government that you know led to World War II. That's sort of the the explanation that a lot of people give about the the um, negative effects of of that white peril. Yeah, um,
1: it's, not, it's not the only. factor, but, but it is it right, is, right it is, important, it is. important to acknowledge. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. geopolitics too, but still you know,
0: that type of racism was corrosive. Right. Right. So I, I think what I want to do is maybe push us a little forward into that inner war period. Um, uh, Again, uh, I mentioned earlier about Chapter 5, when you look at uh, issues of nationalism, internationalism, and Japanese exclusion between 1919 and 1924. In particular, I'll just note for listeners um, the analysis that you do. um, Again, looking at spatial data between Northern and Southern California, but also different neighborhoods in Los Angeles around the issue uh, of the alien land law, uh, which was targeted against uh, Japanese immigrants. Um, that's a fascinating chapter that, uh, unfortunately we don't have as much time to, to, uh, tap into cause I want to get to the back half, uh, of the book. Um, so I want to talk about chapter six, um, which is entitled silver lining new deals for Asian Americans, 1924 to 1941, again, to really highlight, uh, a set of, uh, characters or actors, um, in the egalitarian camp that, uh, listeners may not be quite as familiar with in this chapter. You look at the interwar reinvigoration of egalitarianism, but also explain why before World War II, which you, where, where we really see that sort of great transformation, as you call it, um, you, you talk about how in this interwar period, despite this reinvigorated egalitarianism, um, it really has very little uh, impact on anti-Asian policies. The group of new players in this period um, that folks may be interested in hearing about um, are uh, the, the the organizers of the Institute of Pacific Relations, the administrators of the Survey of Race Relations. So can you tell us a little bit about who is the IPR uh, and what new approaches and perspectives do they bring to egalitarianism during the interwar period? Sure. Uh, you, you did mention the,
1: the data on Los Angeles voting precincts. I just want to just talk about, just mention this, just how wonderful, this is another example of finding yeah please do please do in this case spatial data spatial and well quantitative data that i spatialized through gis software but um it was just such a lucky coincidence that i you know voting the voting precinct voting precinct data is easy to find you just get it from the state of california for 1920 in this case 1920 general election um so i got that but and so i was able to you know recount all of the different 700, over 700 voting precincts in Los Angeles and how they voted on this proposition, this alien land, propos- uh, land law proposition to strengthen the alien land law against discriminating against Japanese land owning. Um, but I found through looking from the City Archives of Los Angeles, I was talking to the archivist, and I, there was a map of voting precincts in Los Angeles. And so just, it's a long story, but I was able through uh, an engineer at the Spatial Sciences Institute on my campus to match that map, uh, to create a GIS uh, map of that, to digitize basically that map and to input, this is what GIS software allows you to do, input all of that precinct data into that map. So I can get spatially, I can see which areas of the city we're voting for and against. And then to connect those areas of the city with different socioeconomic variables anyway so that's it was just really fun to to do that um so back to the 1930s i again i think what i did in every one of these chapters was i sort of i know the literature or i read the literature and i've been you know teaching asian american history for many years so i know the literature pretty well and i was just you know as i was thinking about the literature through the data and through the evidence i was looking at in terms of the exclusion debate there was a mismatch there was a mismatch because the scholarship almost all of it tends to focus on the exclusionist side so i kept asking the question well, what's the what's the egalitarian side doing right and what's the relationship between the two and so i s- discovered all of this in the 1930s uh, egalitarian you know those who were supporting Asians who wanted to get a quota for japan after they were excluded in 24 there were a number of of fairly influential individuals and groups who said, okay, okay, there's exclusion. Now let's try to amend that. Let's get a quota so there can be 100, 200 Japanese, just a token quota for the Japanese. And then the Japanese government will be happy and we'll prevent war. We'll have you know better peaceful relations. And so the Institute of Pacific Relations is a key uh, part of that constituency the egalitarian side to push for that quota and who they are were um they were a non-governmental organization um that began in 1925 in hawaii as a result of or spurred on by the japanese exclusion crisis uh to prevent war in the pacific you know um to, to create a harmonious sort of Situation for stability, for trade, for cultural understanding, uh, all of that. Um, and they were basically, uh, it was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, who were consistently supporting these kinds of causes. The Carnegie Foundation was another one, Carnegie, you know, uh, for international peace. The Carnegie program was very big. Uh, as well in promoting relations with Japan and opposing, directly opposing, or in some sort of kind of secretive ways as well, um, opposing, uh, discriminating, or Asian exclusion, Japanese exclusion, um, and they're also funded by the YMC. There was a lot of connection between um, Chris. There, these were all. There was a lot of Christian sort of spirit between uh, among all of these. Rockefeller Foundation was. There was a real religious spirit to that as well. Uh, Carnegie uh, supported Christian campaigns for peace, et cetera. And al- almost all of these, Gulick was a Christian minister, as I, men- as I mentioned. He was very much the implementer and the organizer of a lot of this money from the Carnegie and Rockefeller foundations. Um, and so what the IPR did was it invited every nation on the Pacific who had interest in the Pacific to send representatives to talk about important issues uh involving the pacific and in this case the first one was japanese exclusion um and so the u.s government i mean u.s sent representatives represents not so much government people but they were usually former government officials like former secretaries of state etc leading intellectuals uh, academics um very prominent people japan sent representatives <laughs> excuse me uh but but there are a lot of people there. It starts in Hawaii. Um, and then the IPR and then the IPR's sort of recommendations and the, the the kind of discussions they have are all for peace, or all on the egalitarian side. I mean, I wouldn't say every single person, because Paul Scherenberg was there who was a labor advocate, who opposed, you know, who who was an exclusionist. And yet he was, because he would go to the IPR and be exposed to all this, he was more nuanced and complicated in his position, at least privately. Um, and so there's sort of private stories about how he was being recruited and he even agreed to be on the egalitarian side to promote this quota for Japanese immigrants. So that's a new player. They're, they are tied to, this, a lot of the same people are tied to uh, a survey of race relations, which is a big Rockefeller-funded um academic study headed by Robert Park, who was the leading sociologist of his day from the University of Chicago uh, at Stanford University. And Stanford is a a bastion of egalitarianism from its president, David Starr Jordan, early on, you know, from the turn of the century all the way up to the 1920s. um, He is a big friend of Japan and did not want any kind of exclusion or humiliation of the Japanese. I take that back. It's a little bit more nuanced. He doesn't care about excluding the laborers. He doesn't want complete exclusion. You know, he doesn't want his students who are coming from Japan, or he doesn't want intellectuals or the elite classes of Japan, which he knows Japan very well, uh, excluded and humiliated. He wants peace as well between the U.S. and Japan. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the next president is, becomes the head of the IPR. Um, and so Stanford has a real, you know, big role to play In this survey, and as well as in the IPR, and the survey, what its whole purpose was, and this, in many ways, was planned originally by the Rock or by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, They wanted to fund a survey like this, but they don't get to it, and so it gets manifested in the twenties. And the whole purpose was to do serious academic research onto Asian immigration issues now they call it survey of race relations but that's sort of if all of the subjects were mostly about chinese japanese indian filipino issues uh all the way around the west coast all the way up to british columbia and um and it was robert park had said i said his his arguments his conclusions are very supportive of an egalitarian position there's really not a lot of exclusionists at all in that. And so there's a consistent, these new players, these uh, survey race relations. And then many of the, the managers of that survey go on to the IPR, the direct connection uh, in Hawaii. Um, and then they continue to push for a quota until it becomes impossible to achieve because Japanese militarism in Manchuria. Uh, starts ramping up, and then it just becomes politically impossible to try to soften Japanese exclusion at the same time the U.S. government and the State Department are opposing Japanese expansionism in northern China. There are other new players in the 30s, too. Here's where the Filipinos come back in, uh, because Filipino exclusion happens. A lot written about that in 1934 with the Tidings-McDuffie Act. But there's a number of hearings, and, uh, you know, uh, before that time in which Filipino players are coming from the Philippines, you know, Manuel Rojas, etc., major political leaders of, uh, let me back up a little bit, but 1916 and from there on, uh, the Philippines colony is becoming, the U.S. is granting it more autonomy. It's, it's still a colony. The U.S. still has the final word, but there is a legislature. There's a, a two-house, you know, bi- uh, bicameral legislature, and the Filipinos are allowed to make their own laws. Now, of course, the, the Americans have the ultimate authority about whether to approve them, but there's still the sort of practicing democracy in works, which wasn't there earlier on in the colonial era. Um, and, you know, by the, you know, and there's, there's a representative in Congress, Right for the Philippines, like, like Hawaii had one, all the territories have one, the colonies have one, they were non-voting. But a lot of these officials, the non-voting representatives and the uh, politicians, leading politicians from the Philippines, converge on the D.C., and they oppose Filipino exclusion vigorously. Uh, but there's this nuance to the debate, which is different from what happens with the Chinese or Indians or Japanese, and that is, okay, they, they introduce this notion of independence. And, you know, they wouldn't always say this, but they were saying, we oppose all of this racism against the representation of Filipinos in America, or hordes of them coming in. But at the same time, if you grant us independence, we will kind of, you know, be okay with it. If you want to exclude us, that's okay. Well, it's not us, because it's not the elites, you know, it's, it's the workers who are mostly coming. But we'll take that in exchange for independence. And that's, in fact, I mean, it's not. I'm putting it simplistically, but that's in fact what happens with the Tidings McDuffie Act. It. it sets the U.S. or the Philippines on a 10-year timetable for independence, but at the same time, it starts exclusion right then, right away. And so, Filipino exclusion happens 34 with the Tidings McDuffie Act. But there are these new players on the egalitarian side that we then we don't tend to think about. And the last one I'll say very briefly are um, labor activists. So. Before this time, Gompers and many, many other labor actors are clearly on the exclusionist side. But in the 30s is when you have the you know, the emergence of the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which is a radical form of labor organizing. Communists are very influential in the CIO, but it's not all communists, who oppose the FFL and their strategy of labor, just looking at the craft and the you know, uh, the, the elite laborers And not looking at all the unorganized workers, whether it's in agriculture or shipping or or the docks or et cetera. And so the CIO is going after everybody, one big union, all the non-skilled workers with the skilled workers. And the AFL is just on the skilled workers. Now, part of that difference and clash between CIO and AFL is that the CIO supports the egalitarian side in the debate. Because they want to organize everyone. They don't want to exclude the Asian immigrants. They want to organize them in their union against the big business owners. AFL continues their uh, exclusionist side. So these are all new players in in, in the debate in the 1930s.
0: Well, then this brings us perfectly to Chapter 7, which uh, sees all of these players, all of these new and old players together uh, on both sides of the debate during World War II. Um, chapter seven is entitled Winds of War, Internment, and the Great Transformation 1941 to 1952. And I, the, the thing that's really um, interesting about this chapter for me is how you sort of uh, – um, bring the exclusionist and the egalitarian sides together for what both would consider probably their high point. Um, on one hand, the exclusionists achieve sort of their greatest triumph, total exclusion of Japanese and Japanese Americans from the West Coast, but at the same time, it provides a um, an opportunity for egalitarians to dismantle a lot of the exclusionist policies uh, that have discriminated against uh, immigrants from uh, um, the Asian allies that are fighting on the side of the United States during this war. So, in some ways, it's kind of a um, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to call it one step back, two two step forward, one step back, or or you know, sort of pros and cons, but given these sort of contrasting directions, how should we understand the overall legacy of World War II for anti-Asian racism, in your in your view?
1: Yeah, and it's it's not just World War II. I think the, the chapter covers the Cold War as well, the early start of the Cold War. So it's war, not just World War Two, because there's a real continuity, right, in terms of the exclusion debate from World War Two through the Cold War where a lot of the exclusionists, the diehard exclusionists like the AFL, switch sides. Or uh, maybe switch sides is too hard, is too harsh, uh, or is too uh, sort of strong a way of putting that. But they soften considerably on the exclusionist issue, where they're okay with the implementation of egalitarian policies, the end, basically, of Asian exclusion. Um, so, yeah, these, both these things are happening at the same time. My sense is that as bad as the internment of Japanese Americans was, um, I, I think it's a bit of a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an exception to this overall trend that I, I noted starting from the 1930s or at least the, you know, the middle of the 1920s of the sort of rise of, ex, of, of egalitarianism. Now, certainly in the 30s and 20s, it doesn't succeed, as I say that very clearly in my chapter, but when you get to World War II, the egalitarianism does succeed and that exclusion ends. Chinese are allowed to immigrate. They're allowed to get a quota. So floods of Chinese are not coming in, but floods of all immigrants are not coming in because there's a quota in 1924 which for all nations in the world, larger for Western and Northern European countries, smaller for Southern and Eastern Europeans, and even you know smaller for Asian countries. But Chinese exclusion ends, and so they're on an equal footing in terms of the law you know, to all of the other nations in terms of having a quota. Um, by 46, the and, and, oh, in addition to the Chinese exclusion ended, which Franklin Roosevelt supported very strongly, in 1943, uh, Chinese are allowed, the immigrants in the U.S. are allowed uh, to naturalize. Well, then the immigrants coming in, they're allowed to naturalize for the first time ever. And so no more alien land laws can apply to them because that applied to citizens not eligible for citizen or, or aliens not eligible to citizenship doesn't apply to the Chinese anymore if they naturalize. Uh, or, or not even if they don't, right? because they're eligible now to naturalization. Uh, same thing happens with the Filipinos and Indians in 1946. They get a quota and they're allowed to naturalize. And then by 52, the same thing happens with the Japanese. And really, in theory, all Asians are allowed a quota, and they're allowed to naturalize, and so it is a high point for egalitarianism. Um, it's a reversion back to, in many ways, before 19 or 1882, when there was no differences in terms of how you know how the law, immigration law, applied to Asians versus how they applied to white. The caveat, and the difference, uh, the, the the one sort of remaining problem for for the Asians. Is the Asia Pacific Triangle? There is this legal concept in immigration law that does discriminate against Asian immigrants as opposed to European or immigrants from any other part of the country. I, I won't get into it, but it's, a, it's 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 still an issue. But by 1965, that goes away as well. So the trend very much is toward an egalitarianism. Now, I don't by that I don't mean that you know everyone's not racist anymore in the US, you know, and everyone loves Asians, and there are no problems, not at all. But in terms of the law, in terms of the politics of the exclusion debate, there is a very noticeable swing in momentum toward
0: the egalitarian side. So that brings us to the final chapter, which is chapter eight, entitled After the Storm Debating Asian Americans in the Egalitarian Era. Um, and And this is a uh, in some ways sort of sets up, I think, the the historiographical um, uh, purpose of, of the book, because you, you write about the transformation and in some ways the erasure of egalitarianism in the context of the Civil Rights Revolution and its aftermath. You write about the emergence of what you call an interpretive generation gap during this period, including scholars like Ron Takaki, who embrace a pluralistic vision rather than an assimilationist one, which we've seen before with uh, folks like uh, Robert Park, I found this one of the most nuanced sections of the book, and therefore perhaps one of the trickiest to understand. And you explain that the point here for us to understand is that uh, is not that Takaki's book, uh, uh, *Strangers from a Different Shore*, um, causes scholars to ignore the story of egalitarianism because you you th- you think that's too simplistic an explanation. So so what? would you like readers and listeners to take away from this final chapter? Or if I can ask the question differently, um, how do we honor previous egalitarians while pushing back against what is very clearly a history of discrimination and inequality when it comes to Asian migration in the United States?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you you noticed that. This is in some ways the hardest chapter to to write Um, because in many ways, I, I mean, I didn't, it seems like, it would lead itself to a kind of historiography, right? Of everything written since the 1970s or something since the emergence of ethnic studies. Um, And I didn't want it to be that. I mean, clearly it's a part of this larger book, right? And so ultimately it had to just be the last chapter of this narrative. Um, And I think what I, what I ended up focusing on and what, what I was most curious about in terms of reading, you know, of, of thinking about the whole prospect of how do you narrativize the exclusion debate after the debate, after exclusion ends, right? So in 65, basically, there's no more exclusion, right? There's that last piece, the Asia Pacific Triangle discrimination is gone. All, and there's not even different quotas anymore because people make that as a case for discrimination because Asians have much smaller quotas than, say, England. That's gone in 65. Every nation in the world has the same 20,000 quota, right? I mean, and we can get into some issues about, you know, Western Hemisphere and Eastern Hemisphere, but that doesn't really involve Asian countries and Asian peoples that much, uh, or if at all. Uh, so really the the exclusion debate is over. And so how do I, should I just end it in 65? So I thought about doing that, but but in many ways, the question came to me was not so much, you know, the exclusion debate, you you know, do we want Asians? Do we not want Asians? Do we discriminate against them or not? But it was really about why don't we know about the exclusion debate? So really this chapter is about memory and how historians in this case, they're the main focus, but also congressional committees on redress and so forth, popular sort of these kinds of popular actions or public actions are important too, as in terms of, you know, the exclusion debate is over, but why don't we even know about an exclusion debate? Why is the sort of popular memory and scholarly memory of it that there was no debate? It was always about exclusionism. Maybe there are different types of exclusionism and different dimensions of exclusionism, but there was no egalitarian side. Um, There was no real debate between that. Uh, And so that's how I read Takaki. That's how I read the redress debates and the... Uh, congressional legislation, or not legislation, resolutions to um, oppose, apologize for, not an official apology, but what's the term, express regret for Chinese exclusion that Judy Chu, Congresswoman Judy Chu was involved in. Um, So that's how I bring a lot of that in, the Asian American movement, how I bring that in as well, in that literature of early ethnic studies, and, and how this whole notion of the debate just becomes impossible to recognize because of the ways in which Asian American history or the memory of Asian American history uh, is shaped oftentimes for
0: political reasons. I think that's a really important point, especially uh, in the current political environment where uh, we have to recognize because of the, the veracity of the debate, right, that the existence of that debate uh, at least suggest the possibility of change making and resistance and pushback, and uh, that there is um, uh, an ability to build coalitions with uh, certainly you know Asian American activists uh, or activists within that community to to speak up, um, as you have noted that people like Manuel Rojas do uh, and and others, um, but also to to recruit, ally with and and collaborate with uh, folks like William Seward, folks like uh, uh, Chester Roll after he. You know, uh, is able to to uh, see the light, I suppose, um, uh, and to to bring them into that conversation as well uh, on questions of uh, inclusion. Uh, for Asian Americans in the United States. I, Lon, I want to recognize that we've taken up so much of your time today, and I, I could talk to you you know, two or three times longer uh, uh, about the book, but one of the things that I, I certainly want to recognize is that this is not even your most recent uh, work uh, that you've published um, in the last uh, year or two, Uh, You've actually um, uh, published a a textbook, I believe, called Global Americans, which we've also featured on the New Books Network, uh, and more recently uh, published um, an edited volume uh, on uh, sort of trans-Pacific histories um, uh, of the United States. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you see this work tying into both those books, but also the current research that you're doing, uh, whatever that topic may be
1: yeah so uh, I had a lot of sort of balls in the air all at the same time, and they all you know I was editing three or three or four books all at the same time um in in page groups uh so I was really busy a couple of years ago um I, I think they they all kind of merge in a way and I, and I usually see the two faces book as a kind of uh, as the main text because i mean even though I devoted as much time and attention to all these other works, you know this was uh, this, in some ways, uh, you know, was my, more of my baby because it was just it was a single authored monograph. Um, and so I, I think two Faces has a textbook feel to it, and that's intentional. Um, I, I put all of the pictures. The publisher wanted to put pictures next to the you know wh- where the text talks about them, and I think that's the standard way of doing it. But I said, no, I want to put them all in the middle, gathered together where I can write a lot of text where students, or anyone who wants to read the book quickly, can just get like a PowerPoint, you know, pictorial sort of uh, narrative of the whole book. And so if anyone is, you know, listening and they want just a quick summary of what the book, you know, what the narrative is, just go to the pictures because that's the way it's intended. Um, I think a lot of that came from my textbook writing, just thinking about how you can create summaries, create sort of handrails for, for, for readers to get through a lot of information quickly or at least on the first paths, and then maybe go back and, and read it more, more carefully for the nuance and the detail. Um, at the same time, you didn't mention this, but I had a second edition of my major problems textbook that I did with Alice uh, Alice Yang, Santa Cruz. And so we were thinking about, I was thinking about the textbook of all of US history, but I was also thinking about sort of a textbook understanding of Asian American history and there's so many changes that have gone on since we first published that you know 10 years before Um, or it was more than 10 years before and so that was in this book as well Um, and then the Pacific um, America book the edited collection with Hawaii University of Hawaii Press uh, which has 15 essays about sort of trans-Pacific history what is this whole new idea of globalizing Asian American history. Um, that's in this book in terms of thinking about when I was talking about Sydney Ulick and missionaries expanding the the, the narrative or, or expanding the scope of the narrative to include East Asia, right? To include what's happening over there, to including people going back and forth, et cetera, or consulates coming to the U.S., um, trade in Canton, et cetera, all of these types of thinking, thinking about global uh, globalization, you know, in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, in the late 20th century, you know, in historical context, and bringing that into the narrative of the exclusion debates, something that really hadn't included that uh, in, in the literature before. So I think that's, that's all tied in. Um, what am I doing now? Uh, I, I've got a lot of things going on, but I think what I'll talk about is um, going back to this quantitative side of me is um, I'm interested in the kind of ethnic and racial history of California uh, as an example of sort of a place where you have lots of Asians, but also you have lots of other immigrant and ethnic groups um, and sort of thinking about the, uh, the larger, how, how ethnicity plays a role in all of these groups right and how it shapes all these groups and why is it that some groups get discriminated against and some groups don't Um, what impact does those discriminations have on the different how can you follow that through the generations or through the uh, as well as the regions what differences region make in terms of thinking about ethnicity and the one thing i'm able to do I'm i'm using census data is i'm able to look at european groups and not just to say oh blacks, Asians, you know, and then different Asians, and and then different Latinos, but and and then whites, but to break down the whites to Germans, Norwegians, you know, Poles, Hungarians, Jews are hard because they're all over the place. But in some sense, there is a variable in the census where it's language. So you can look at Hebrew, at least some of the Hebrew speaking Jews. But to be able to sort of chart, maybe 20, 25 different ethnic groups, and over time from the 19th century um, through the 20th century, and to look at sort of social trajectories, economic trajectories, uh, segregation indices, uh, to look at the impact of internment on the Japanese, like their ethnic economies. You know, and, and we think that ethnic economies, Chinatowns, little Tokyo's, sort are of just unique or agricultural for the Japanese uh, farming were just unique to the Asians. And I think that's, you know, coming from Asian American studies, I I tend that's my my you know my knowledge base. But it's true for the Swedes, it's true for the Portuguese in particular in, in the East Bay and, and Northern California. And so I'm interested in doing kind of comparisons. How is it, you know, that how do these form? What do they do? Are there different sort of levels of discrimination that are faced? If so, why? And I should add one more thing. I'm interested in Hawaii too. So yes, California, but Hawaii too is another one of these multi-ethnic, multi-racial places um, that I don't think in either, I know in Hawaii there are social histories done of Hawaii, but there haven't been these types of comparative histories of ethnic groups. Um, and in, like I said, in California, there are comparative histories of racial groups, but they don't break down the whites. And, um, and I think to compare both Hawaii and California, that's unique as well. I don't think there's been one study or a book-length study that's done both Hawaii and California in terms of multi-ethnic, multi-ethnic, not so much relations, but multi-ethnic histories and trajectories. So I'll stop there.
0: Well, that, Lon, that sounds like a great project. And I hope that maybe in the future, we'll be able to get you back to talk about that and um certainly ties in nicely with i think the one of the key conclusions you make in at the end of two faces which is to think about how uh asian american issues connect with broader histories of public policies and in this case as you talk about with your future projects social relations as well so i want to thank you for being on the show today i really enjoyed our conversation and really enjoyed getting to read the book thank you so much again great thanks ian That was my interview with Lan Kurashige, author of Two Faces of Exclusion, The Untold History of Anti-Asian Racism in the United States, published in 2016 by the University of North Carolina Press. I'm Ian Shin, and you've been listening to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.